Welcome to the Paul Spradley Show, a show dedicated to real strategies from real people practicing real leadership in diverse and inclusive cultures. And now here's your host, CEO of the diversity training firm, the Carebase Leadership Collaborative, Dr. Paul David Spradley. And we're back and better than ever. I don't know where we went, but I'm better than ever this time. Thanks for listening and tuning in. Let's dive right in. My guest today is Kate Loveless. Kate is an attorney and advocate licensed to practice law in Colorado, which nobody goes to except for skiing season, and in Pennsylvania. Kate is a New York native but calls Pittsburgh her home. She's a wife, a mother of twins, loves to travel, and is su supervising law students at Duquesne School of Law. But among the things that I'm most excited to talk to Kate about is her work with the Allegheny County Public Defender's Office, where in addition to audit trial court, she worked in juvenile delinquency and mental health civil commitments. Kate, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for having me. It's been a long time trying to get us together, right? Like we've been trying to schedule coffee and it's just... It has. It's hard to get coffee, but here I am on TV. Here you are on real live TV. <laughs> a little terrified. No, there's nothing to be terrified about. You have a great story. Um, so you, you are, um, you've been in law for a while, since 2006? Yeah, yes. I've been in advocacy, I feel like, just my life. But as, as, um, as a lawyer, I've been doing lots of things, some on track, some off track of what I was expecting to do. But right. um, public defense is really where I found a home, I'd say. Yeah, so you love that. And there's people that run away from it. Talk about, A, what are some of the stereotypes around public defenders and public defense? And what's the reality? Well, I think if you read any news about public defenders, it's not, it usually includes some, something bad, uh, that they don't have enough time or they don't have enough resources or they don't get paid enough and they can't do a good job. Kind of like teachers. Yes, although teachers probably get, they do get paid more. Actually, I just had this oh, wow. conversation with my, um, <laughs> my father-in-law. But the reality is that there are public defenders that are better than private lawyers and there are private lawyers that are better than public defenders. Mm -hmm. And what you get out of a lawyer is what you feel like you're getting out of a lawyer is what you put into it and what you, what the whole system is designed, already structured before you get there. So you might get a great public defender that you couldn't buy, they would never be a private lawyer, but they will win your case every single time. Mm. You might get a private lawyer that never calls you back, vice versa. So I think their misconception is that you get a better lawyer because you pay for one. Um, I, I liked being a public lawyer better than a private lawyer personally, but you know, public defenders aren't very, they don't take it personally if you don't want to, it's just one less thing for them to do, but right. there's no reason to believe that public defenders aren't as good or any better lawyer than any other criminal defense lawyer just because they work for the government or because they choose to get paid less. Yeah. I mean, they, get, they do it because they know what they're getting themselves into, so they're doing it because they either want to do it or they have some political ambition, probably. Yeah, and I, I want to get into that a little bit later, but let's go backwards. So for the folks who don't know what you know, a private lawyer is versus a public defender. What kind of work does a public defender do? So a lot of times, like someone will accidentally call me a DA, and a DA would be a district attorney, and a PD is either a public defender or an, in the same context can be a police police department. Sometimes they PD can be used interchangeably depending on who you're talking to. But um, so district once a police officer files charges, the district attorney decides whether or not to pursue those charges in court, and if they do pursue criminal charges, then you're entitled to a public defender if you are incarcerated or you meet the income qualifications. Or if you don't, you can get a, 
private attorney, or you can go to a judge and say, I don't have any money, but I don't qualify for the public defender either. Could you appoint a lawyer for me? So those are the different kinds of lawyers. But, but for the most part, public defenders and conflict attorneys, in some form or another, get paid by the government to stand up to the government. Okay. And private lawyers take your money and stand up to the government. So it's just a matter of funding. Yeah. Would you say the work is challenging or like what tell me what does the work look like so for you to defend to help me understand the mindset around the idea of going in and saying I'm going to take this case and this person is going to tell me what they did and I'm going to be their advocate I'm going to defend them right well it really depends on what stage you're at in a proceeding so most of what I did when I was a public defender was in magistrate court and juvenile court and I did some adult court but most of my time was in, in those two practices. So in magistrate court, it's, um, it's, it's difficult because you're trying to explain to people, you don't pick any cases. First of all, as a public defender, you don't choose any of your cases. You get whatever cases come to you, and if you're with another public defender that day and nobody knows any clients at that point because they've all been arrested that weekend, you sort them alphabetically or what have you. So you, you really haven't had a chance to talk to people before that. Um, if you're a private lawyer, you're probably taking a case because of the money, mm -hmm. and you don't really care about anything else. And if you're a public defender, you don't pick your case. So, so there's not really so much of a like pickiness about what kind of cases any criminal defense attorney would take. Um, but my position has always been everybody else is here. Everybody else doesn't believe you already. Mm. So there's no reason for me not to. There's like 100 other people here who don't. Wow. So to me, it just feels like I'm here for you. I don't, whether you did it or not, this system is designed to institutionalize poverty and criminalize mental illness. That's what it is. That's what it seems to be here for. So let's get you out of it as quickly as possible with the least amount of consequences. And I don't think that's particular to public defense. That's just a criminal defense like that's the machine. So oftentimes, you know, you might have, say, a small amount of marijuana, um, enough that would be illegal at this point, and your attorney says, you pay the $200 fine. They're different. You can have a civil fine, too, now, but mm -hmm. it's still up to the officer to decide whether or not they want to punish you criminally or civilly. So you can imagine how that's implemented. Um, but, you know, your, your lawyer might say, pay the fine and take the disorderly conduct and just be on your way. Um, but some, the person who's being accused of the marijuana possession might feel like, but they really didn't have a right to search me. They really didn't have a right. Like, mm -hmm. this really shouldn't have happened. And they might be totally right. And your answer has to be kind of, well, you, if you want to spend six to eight months fighting it, we can do that. And you will probably win. But you might not. And if you don't, you'll have a criminal conviction. You know, and then you'll be paying the cost of being on probation, depending on what kind of probation it looks like. So do you want to pay $200 today and be done with the system and have no criminal record but like a small offense? Or do you want to take your chances and go? So people often say things like, my lawyer told me I had to plea. And it's sort of like, lawyers don't tell you you have to plea. But sometimes it's like, you just have to pick your battle. Yeah. And even if you win this, like what are the other consequences? How many days do you have to take off work? How many, are you looking for a job? Because as long as you're looking for a job, this is going to be out there as a pending arrest. So I'm starting to understand when you talk about the system, this, this giant thing, because there's a little, and, and even in the story that you told, there's these little pieces, right? When you say, if I do want to take this chance, and now I've got to take days off, but I, 
I might not have a job where I have the flexibility to take this many days off. Right. So that's, that already hurts me. I've already got this against me. Um, and then just the, so there's some other components of what you call the system. Can you talk about, like, when you say that, when you talk about the system yeah. that is designed to, to hurt, I would say, marginalized people. Right, and institutionalized poverty, sort of. Right. So one of my biggest pet peeves about the system is the bail system. This really drives me crazy because, you know, the magistrates are usually the ones setting bail almost entirely because they, do, they see someone first. So unless you've forfeited your bond or you've, your bail's been revoked or some way and you go back in front of your judge, generally you're going in front of a magistrate. And magistrates don't have to have law degrees. I think more than half of them do at this point in Allegheny County, but they don't have to have any training. Really, they could be the secretary of the last magistrate. That's mm. pretty common, actually. So one magistrate might give $5,000 for a simple assault. One might give $25,000 bond for simple assault. And to them, it's just percentage money. They just think, well, it's $5,000. You just have to pay $500 to a bail bondsman. Like, as if people just have $500. Right. And then they have to pay $250 like on fees to get the bail bondsman to post the $500, which they don't get back. If the magistrate says, I'll give you a $5,000 percentage bond, then they only have to pay the percentage, 10% of the $5,000 bond, but they get it back. So it's just, a, it's just semantics, really, like what your magistrate is willing to say. And really, if we believed in capitalism, then we would be investing all bail money in our own system. All bail money should come from the court. It should be 5000 at 10% bond, and that 10% gets paid to the court. It's earning interest while your case is waiting, and you get it back if you showed up to court. Um, but that's not how it's working. If you had a magic wand, right, it, it, when you talk about like sort of ways to fix this system, you could just take your magic wand. What would be some of the things maybe on the top level? Because yes. it sounds like it sounds like the lawyer, the magistrates, and the judges might need certain kinds of training or things like that. What what at each level? What would you do if you had a magic wand? Well, I would do that. I would do something about this cash bail problem um, because the magistrates and the Everybody at that level of, of early incarceration, when there are just allegations, when someone's overdosed on drugs and they're going to jail, <clears throat> and then they get released and then they die because they've been in, incarcerated for 20 <clears throat> excuse me, for 20 days and now their system, you know, they go do fentanyl and they die. It, incarcerating people is like saying you don't believe in people. Hmm. So, you know, what are you, you're just making people unemployable, uh, absent from their children normalizing incarceration. And I went to visit um, a former client of mine at her housing authority property. And it's fine, it's like reasonably well kept, but it feels like an acclimation to prison. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're like 10 by 10 foot bedrooms with painted cinder block. And to me, like, I didn't grow up that way in cinder block, painted cinder block. So when I see it, it reminds me of jail. Which is interesting because, so now, you know, I was doing a training and we were talking about the idea of racism um, being an avenue to premature death. And so you look at the school to prison pipeline, like you could die in school, in prison, but if your school looks like a prison and I'm sort of being taught unconsciously, this is where I belong and I'm not being served in the right way. If your home, like you're saying, looks like a prison and you're understanding like, this feels like home for me. Yes. This, um, th th that feels problematic to me. Yes, that, that these children will get to jail someday because they probably will. They're being surrounded by 
police officers in communities where scooping up young black children is common. So the idea that they would go to Schumann or to the county jail and that would feel familiar or nostalgic to anybody who's never been there is frightening to me. So that was my problem with seeing that housing property. And that was like a nice housing property. Right. Wow. Um, so you've, I mean, even when you transition out of doing public defense, your, your, your own private practice now, um, where you do criminal defense, mm -hmm. you've taken on this, it's almost like your calling, your life's calling has been to serve uh, the least of these, if you will. How, how, did you, how did you get to that point? Well, so I, I grew up with, uh, my mother passed away when I was young and I don't have any siblings. So I grew up with just a father and he is sort of a do-gooder by nature. My whole family, I think, comes from mostly good-natured people, but my father was a social worker when I was growing up. So I was just sort of exposed to a lot of that in mental health and he worked for the county and um, other sort of local community organizations. So I think just be being an only child of a single parent and being tagged along on those types of things, you just sort of, that's what I got used to. Mm -hmm. So the way my client's children are learning to get used to the pain and cinder block, I was getting used to being around people who needed more help and I had resources to help them. And I liked seeing how fulfilling that was for my dad. And so I think I just sort of fell into some level of advocacy by nature uh, and nurture, I guess, both, I don't know. That just comes from him, I think. But I did work with autistic kids. That was my first, um, my first job out of college, was being a TSS, a therapeutic support staff for autistic children. And there's nothing like going into people's houses and sitting, you know, seeing inside their house, sitting on their floor and playing with their children, seeing the value of humans, um, the strides and the pride that that children can have in themselves, just that kind of heartwarming connection with humans. I liked that. And so staying in touch with the autism community has always been something in, the, in my background. I've, I've just kind of stayed in touch with people who do that, and I like talking to people who are dealing with it now. And so I do get a lot of calls about people who might have some, love, some on the spectrum some just a different kind of special needs. They might just get my name through that kind of network um, that I work within of people who are also advocates for that community. So just for instance, like I, might, I got a case once where it was like a nonverbal 20-something autistic man who's living in a group home with full-time care and just really obsessed with mail, um, took his neighbor's mail at one point. This wasn't even in Allegheny County. so. Um, and the neighbor not understanding any of the nonverbal, the mental illness, um, starts screaming at, at this 20-year-old. The 20-year-old starts flailing and spitting. And, uh, and he had to go to court for all of this. And I had to call court and say, like, this, this young man is so sensitive to stimulation that you, there has to be, like, a room for us to go in. I mean, that's just how, what, what are we criminalizing? You know? Like, what, who's, who won? that case. The, 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 the facility that he was staying in a group home with offered to pay any damages to the mailbox, to the guy's glasses, whatever he said. They were like, we'll pay for it. What? And that was the deal we ended up working out. And I was like, well, why did we have to work that out here? Wow. Why, did he, why did six people have to transport him? Why did they have to pay me? Why did we all have to come here 
to have him spoken to like this just for someone else to pay the $150. Where's the disconnect? Why do you think people don't care um, in situations, spe specifically around people with disabilities, but also like, you've, like you mentioned earlier as a criminal defense and as a public defender, that people don't believe you anyway, or you've, you're already guilty in someone else's eyes, right? Like what's the disconnect? Um, Mm. I have a thought, but I, I want to hear what your thought is. Like, what do you think the disconnect is? How, how are you able to make sense of this person as a as a person? And it seems like the rest of us can't. I think people don't think it could happen to them. So there's a big disconnect there, although it can happen to you, but it's there are certain demographics that you're much more likely to have interactions with police. Um, but I would say that I would... <clears throat> The opioid epidemic, I think, is making people more <coughs> sympathetic to criminal defense in some ways because people are seeing their children be, or people they know either dying or going to prison. And neither of those are good options for humans, right. whether it's heroin or burglary. I mean, at the end of the day, the world is hard and people live hard lives and they learn certain behaviors and they make certain decisions to survive. And part of the disconnect is that police and district attorneys and magistrates and um, judges are very desensitized, hmm. quite honestly. They're just very desensitized to this process. They um, had one autistic kid who just mimics, he's a very mimicky facial person. So when the magistrate, who's just sort of like a smiley person, kept smiling, because that's how she is, he kept smiling, and he was in high school, and she threw him in jail, because he's 18, so he's old enough to go to jail, and kept telling me, but he's smiling. And I was like, because you're smiling. So I don't know how you fix that. I said they have training. You know, they have training for autism spectrum. The Autism Connection does that. And she said, yes, I've had it. So, you know? What do you do? Right. I think people caring about who their magistrates are and who their district attorneys are or who their district attorney is matters, but it's a hard sell. Yeah. So I, uh, man, there's so much, so much good in that because one of the things that you said earlier on is that you know you had these experiences that you were exposed to, but a lot of people have these experiences that they're exposed to. There had to, there was something else that happened that pushed you into the space of advocacy because people are are in that space all the time. Um, and do you have an experience or a moment where you were like, man, like I feel like this really catapulted me into the space of advocacy, of being able to see and care for people? Um, and because where I'm going is there's, you, you are a white woman in Pittsburgh, and there are people that will say, I identify with you, mm -hmm. but I can't, I'm not speaking the same language that you're speaking. I don't quite get it the same way that you get it. I want to, but, so was there a thing, a moment, or was it a series of practices that got you into this headspace where you care about people differently? And is there something from your experience that a person listening might be able to begin to put into practice themselves? Um, no, I, no, but I was held up at gunpoint when I was in, early in college. Um, and I think that that really shocks public defenders. They like couldn't believe that story, mm. but they were probably teenagers and this was in the 90s, so what color shirt you were wearing really mattered, whether it was 
red or blue. That was a that was a big it's deal. A big deal. Yeah. And I was with another person at the time that lived in my house. We were walking back from class together, and I remember being like, "Red, red shirts, red shirts, absolutely red shirts." And he was like, "They were definitely blue." But it when I began public defense, it sort of or it was interested in criminal defense in general. It helped me really understand like how faulty the human mind is, you know? I mean, we're talking two only two of us looking at two other people directly in front of me for like five minutes and I couldn't tell you what they were wearing, apparently. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but that's usually like the sign that someone would become a district attorney, you know? If they've been a victim of a crime, they usually go on the other side. So I, I can't say that there are things, I've more been a victim of crimes, I suppose, but I just believe in the power of humans and I'm not a religious person, but service is sort of a religion to me, and in, in a completely selfish way, it makes me feel really good. So I did a lot of other jobs. I worked at UPMC, I worked at um, a law firm in the city, and I worked for a, a company not in the city. I don't work for Duquesne anymore, by the way, um, just to clarify earlier, but the less money I make and the more people I help, the happier I am. And I, I wish that wasn't true. Wouldn't it be nice yeah. <laughs> if I could work less and make more and be happier? But I, I wish there was a clearer answer. I, if you, I always say, if you follow a public defender around for a week, you won't ever see the system the same way. It's just completely insane. The things you have to say to people, you know, like what I was saying before, just saying like these are your options. They're terrible. Hmm. They're terrible options. And the other thing is that sometimes people are especially when there's addiction involved, they're spending all this time in recovery if they can and paying the consequences later. And that's part of addiction and recovery in the justice system. But as someone who doesn't think that caging human beings, I don't know when people started calling themselves, is that like some word yeah. <laughs> that people are like whitewashing because they don't want to call them cages? But I don't know. I mean, sort of to go back to your point, I have a lot of cis white privilege guilt. I it bothers me. I, I think about it a lot at night, but why? I think because even my hardest times feel easy. I always will have like resources. Um, I'll you can't take my education away from me, and I have great family and. Um, I just, I'm lucky. I'm lucky that I don't have to work right now and take care of, I can take care of my kids and I'm lucky that if I want to go back to work full time that it would be something where I can afford to help a lot of people and make less money. And that's the way I, I guess, um, compensate for that guilt. But it also makes me feel really good. So it's sort of a win-win situation in that, in that way. Hmm. What's the... You've, you've used your, you understand your privilege, but you've also spoken out about it before. Like you, 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 you ask the, the lawyer at one point, or the judge at one point, like, have you considered this training because you're speaking on behalf of this person? Is that a tough thing to do to, to, when you're talking about yourself as an advocate, to speak on behalf of injustices that are happening from a race perspective, from a mental health perspective? Oh, it's hard for me to keep my mouth shut, to be honest. I mean, I've gotten in trouble for it because I say exactly what I mean. Mm -hmm. And um, I wish I was a little bit more filtered, to be honest, a little bit more polished in my ability to be political. But 
it's not hard for me to say that. And I'm also, you know, I often say to people, to my clients, like, if I had, if I have to kiss your butt to get you out of here, why wouldn't you kiss someone's butt? You know, if I have to do it, why wouldn't you do it? Like, this is about your freedom. This isn't about pride anymore. Like, that cop has too much power today. So if you want your freedom, then you have to, the system is too big to fight, right? It's so big. It's so hard to say, um, you, you yell at this, like, let's go after the cop. Like, he really messed you up. But I feel like you put your head down and you have to do this modern, you, my client, you have to go along with this sort of like modern day slavery. And it's awful where you put your head down and pretend like, yes, sir, thank you, sir, you've done me such a service by letting me not be charged with a felony for what wasn't a felony in the first place. Thank you, you're so generous. But I don't have to be that way. So I tend to be like, you do that because they're not gonna throw me in jail, you know? It, and so there's some of the inequities in like how people can talk to. You know, I can talk to a police officer in a way that my clients can't and in a way that I shouldn't. But most of my young clients anyway really like really appreciate just having someone stand up. They don't even care sometimes that they lose. They just want they just want to see someone stand up for them. Someone who doesn't look like them, who doesn't sound like them, but just believes like, yeah, that's what you want to do. Let's do it. Like yeah. I'm here for that. Yeah, and I, I it it like physically makes me angry that that the system is so big that we have to have conversations that we say like yes this is like modern slavery but right like that that makes me upset that yes. that is our that's the option that we have like right we can't we can't then go back and say let's address how like we can't i i think we can like and so i, I you know i'm on a mission to break systems um and i it's bringing the most amount of people as possible to be able to say, no, the way that the police are talking to black and brown people is unfair, is unjust, and we're not gonna tolerate it. Um, and we have to figure out what that not tolerating it is, right? And uh, I think that there's a, a space for someone to push back and say, no, the way that um, black and brown people are living in these communities is, is unacceptable, and we're not gonna tolerate it. And so what we, like, we're in, I'm in a space of, let's get people on board with the idea, first of all, that um, it's worth standing and fighting up for. And secondly, let's collectively come together and, and right wrong actions, right? Like, so we live in a, in an incredibly divided country now where folks will say, well, I'm right and you're not. I, I should have this and you shouldn't, right? Like, and so, um, man, it's just, I, I, now that you've got me all riled up, <laughs> we could go on for more, like, it, it, I'll come back again. <laughs> Do you have a, thank you. Do you have a closing thought, though, right? Because we have to wrap up, mm -hmm. unfortunately. But, like, in that space of it's, these, the systems are incredibly large. What is your words of thought to people that are listening right now? If there was ever such a thing as fake news before this presidency, it's what you read about any criminal trial. Because... Everything you read in the local media or the national media about a criminal case is always coming from the offensive version. Mm -hmm. It's always coming from the police officers or the victims or the district attorneys who are giving that story and that narrate that narrative and putting it out there. 
And so when I read anything, like when I read anything that, that someone has written about a case, my first thought is that's just, that's just that version. And I wish people could do that because cases get withdrawn and dismissed all the time. People get overcharged all the time. And the stigma that they have to return to their communities with for things that are just nominal human behaviors that we've started criminalizing. I just wish people would take a little bit of time to realize having a record sometimes is a consequence of the system and not necessarily a consequence of the behavior. There's so much more for us to dive into. <laughs> we have to wrap up, unfortunately. Kate, thank you so much for thank being on Thank you for having show. me. I, I feel special. It. You are special. <laughs> thank you for the work that you're doing. That's our time for today. Uh, I'm grateful for you for listening. Thank you. If you liked it, please like, comment, subscribe. Uh, and also, we read your comments, so make sure that you are uh, commenting and liking. If it helps, uh, because it helps boost our presence on social media, iTunes, Spotify, everywhere that podcasts are hosted, uh, we want to do training for you. If you're in the space where your organization uh, is a system or needs some support in thinking differently, find me on social media or connect me, my information to your organization, and we would be happy to do diversity, equity, inclusion training for you. Have a fantastic week. Keep on caring.